Okay, welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study, uh, the book of Daniel, part 8. Let's begin in prayer. Father God, we again give you honor and praise. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for the study into Daniel. We thank you for the ability to not only come together and discuss this, but also to record it and uh, have a podcast of it so that uh, people that aren't here uh, in person can uh, receive the instruction or the information, whatever it might be. So, Lord, I just thank you for those that are here tonight, those that are on their way, those who couldn't make it, Lord, those who are traveling around. Lord, we just thank you that you're with all of us right where we're at, and we thank you for that, Lord, and we just, just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. There's a transition now that the first part of Daniel, the first seven chapters, was written to the Gentiles or, you know, others, those that were not Jews. But from chapter 8 on, it's directed towards uh, Jewish people, or Israelis, however you want to say it. Uh, That's why the first seven chapters were written in Aramaic. The last, from chapter 8 on, is written in Hebrew. That's one of the only books that's like that. Jeremiah has a little bit of uh, Aramaic in it. But for the most part, the Old Testament, except for these chapters in Daniel, uh, I mean, is in Hebrew. So, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Uh, Now, what it means there when it says subsequent... What it actually means is it's similar to the dream that he had before that we were talking about last week. And so, um, this is now like three years later. This is between the year 550 and 549. Last week we were in the year 553 and he was 68 years old. So now he's 71 and he's still getting visions. And by the way, there's a book I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone. It's kind of a hard study. But there's these books like on, on Daniel. This one's written by John Golden Gay. He was my Old Testament professor in um, out at Fuller. Very interesting guy. But this is uh, his book. He has a lot of Old Testament books. But this one is pretty good on Daniel. It goes into a lot of depth and in detail on it. Sometimes it could be a little little wordy, a little, you know, real real wordy, but uh, it's a good book. Um, you can pick them up on, on uh, Amazon or stuff like that, but it's called Word Biblical Commentary Daniel uh, John E. Golden Golden Gay. He was an interesting guy. I wasn't sure that he was even saved when I was taking this class. I mean, he was Old Testament, and he was so Old Testament, I wasn't sure he was saved. He's from England. And I got to kind of know his story after a while, and and I asked him, I said, I, I said, how did you get over here from England? And he says, well, his wife had uh, cerebral palsy, and there was, uh, he, he wanted to bring her out here because there was better uh, uh, hospitals for her. 
But he said he was in line to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he turned that down to come to Fuller. So, yeah, he was saved. <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury is like the head of the Church of England. You know, so, interesting guy. He's still teaching at, uh, at Fuller, by the way. It's very interesting guy, English guy. Anyway. Uh, verse 2 to 8. It says, And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside uh, the canal. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. The longer one came up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there any one to rescue him from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. I'll kind of hold it there. Remember, he says this vision is sort of like the vision that he had before, which was about what? The empires. Empires. So when when you read that and you realize, okay, this is something that's got to do with empires, with kingdoms. So this 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 is is visions of that. So what we have here is a ram. And rams do what? They butt, right? That's that's the way they challenge. And so it says, you know, it, it was it was it was budding its way. Uh, it had two long horns, one longer than the other. Two horns, but one was longer than the other. So, and then he says the ram charged west, north, and south, and no one could escape him as he wished, and he became great. Because he was like powerful. This is the vision. Okay? Now this is tied to at verse 5 to 8. It says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns which I had seen standing in the front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. He struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, a large horn, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So you have this ram, two horns, one longer than the other, it's mighty, nobody can come against it, and then now all of a sudden, uh, suddenly a goat with one horn in the middle of his head, comes from the west. And he charges 
and he breaks the other ram's he breaks the ram's horns and uh, then as soon as this goat becomes mighty after doing this his horn breaks and now it's replaced with four horns so what do we have here countries not any different than what we talked about last week it's just explaining it a little bit different okay now um, it's going to explain this I don't know how much I want to say here uh, this is very similar to what we read in chapter 7 verse 6 which says, And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and a beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after that I kept looking at the night vision, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying. He was talking about the four kings, you know, that, that come up. So basically, um, let's read 9 to 12, and then I'll, I'll break it down a little bit more. Any thoughts or questions on that? Because right now it's a, it's a vision. It's not fully explained, but if you're following the narrative of, of what's been revealed, it's not any different than what was revealed last week, but it's just being said a different way. It's not any different than in the book of Revelation, where you have uh, um, the scrolls, and then you have the bowls uh, you know, being poured out. And, and, and it's talking about the wrath of God and, and, and things like that. It's sort of a similar story, but it's told three different ways. So in other words, it just lies on top of one another. So these visions are not of different events. They're just showing it a different way. That This is what's coming. So, verse 9 to 12. And out of one of them, of the, out of these four horns, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down, and even magnified itself to be great with the commander of the host to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and, be, and perform its will and prosper. So you now have one of the horns uh, comes out. It's a smaller horn. It comes out of one of the four horns. So this small horn is insignificant at first, but it becomes great and it exerts power and it persecutes the beautiful land. Now what would the beautiful land be a metaphor? Israel. Israel. Because remember, now we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, 
So it's going to be things that are directed towards Israel. The first seven chapters were things that were general to the world, sort of. And last week it showed how those nations were going to kind of affect the world around Israel. Now this vision is talking about how these rulers are going to affect what happens in Israel. So it's two stories of the same movements. I'll break it down in a little bit in a second. So he sets himself up as a king. And he prohibits Israel from following their religious practices. He desecrates the temple. He despises the word of God. And what does this sound like? Huh? Society. It's part of society. I don't know. Society. Well, yeah, it's a part of society. But last week we talked about that Alexander the Great would come into that area. And Alexander the Great, um, he conquered swiftly and quickly. And but his reign didn't last very long. He died very young. And then uh, four generals took over the kingdom. So think about that, and I'm going to read this again. Verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the... I'm sorry, I'm going to read from verse 5. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which had been standing in the front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. And so he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Now, pay attention to this part. Then the male goat magnified himself. He made himself king over all of this. Uh, Basically, this is now talking about the Greek Empire taking over. Alexander the Great is is basically the first king of of the Greek Empire. So, verse 8, the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. So, in other words, as soon as he became great, his horn was broken. Now, when the horn is broken, it's talking about his kingdom is broken. Just like the two horns that were before him. The two horns that were before him were the Medo-Persian Empire that came in and destroyed Babylon during the time of Daniel. And, and uh, 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 it's called Medo-Persian uh, Empire. They had two kings, one to the north, one to the south. And so he now comes, now Alexander the Great comes and conquers the Medo-Persian Empire. And so as soon as he's mighty, his large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous, conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the earth, these are the four generals that now divided up the Greek Empire. You see, this hadn't happened when it's given. This is 
if you were reading it for the first time, this hasn't happened yet. Okay, this is still several hundred years off. But he's telling Israel, this is what's going to be happening to you. And for, and for a reason, we're going, to, we're going to get the reason before we're done here. Then verse 9, he says, And out of one of them, out of, out of one of the four generals, right? This is actually one of his, his offspring. The, the guy's name that we're going to be talking about is Antiochus. In, uh, uh, yeah, Antiochus. And uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about him in a second. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. Okay? So in other words, this horn that comes up eventually finds itself in Israel. It's part of the Greek Empire, which is huge, but this one horn that comes up from one of the four horns now eventually is going to be in, in, in the Holy Land area. In verse 10, it grew up to be, it grew to be the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now this is interesting. It grew up to, to, to the host of heaven. Now what it's referring to here is uh, uh, the host means what? Army. That's a that's an old term. It's a it's a it's a uh, Hebrew term. Uh, Yahweh Sabah, the Lord of Hosts. So God is the Lord over the army, and the army is the believers. So when it says Lord of Hosts, it's Yahweh Sabah in Hebrew. And it means there's a commander-in-chief, and now the commander-in-chief has an army, and the army is looking to the commander-in-chief for instruction. So when, when, when God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts, he's saying, I'm the one that directs what goes on. I'm the one that sends you out. I'm the one that's called you. I'm the one that sends you out. But this particular person is trying to be like God. He's trying to be that person. He's trying to, in a sense, overthrow God. And the analogy here is that uh, with Satan, you know, Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven. And, you know, he's a fallen angel. So there's a reference here to uh, demonic activity. There's a reference here to, to evil. There's a, there's a reference here to trying to be God. And this is a problem with kings and rulers once they become so great, then it's like, well, there's nothing else to be, so now I'm going to be God. They, they, they literally progress to that place. That they're God. Pharaoh thought he was God. Caesars thought they were God. These conquerors thought that they were God, that nothing could stop them, that they were all powerful. So they start believing their own rhetoric. Verse 11. It says, It even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. So he says he's as God, right? He, he's calling himself to be equal with the commander of, of the host. This is God. No, it's commander, capital C, that's deity. And he removed the regular sacrifice from him. Now, in other words, what he's saying is that this person is going to come into Israel. He's going to proclaim himself to be equal with God. 
he's going to stop the Jewish people from their practice of their of, of, of their religious services in the temple. He's going to proclaim himself to be God, in a sense. Um, he's going to stop the regular sacrifice. And the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. So in other words, he's going to ransack the temple. Right? So again, this guy's evil. Right? Just flat out evil. And on account of the transgression. Now, now here's something that sometimes gets missed. It says, on account of the transgression... The host will be given over to the horn along... The host is the army. So in other words, Israel will be given over to the horn, to this person, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground. In other words, it's not going to use the truth. The Bible is not going to be important. The Old Testament, the law, is not going to be important. And it's in performance will, and it will prosper. This is part, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but this is part of the judgment that is against Israel because of their disobedience against God. So, do we have anybody that fits this picture? Currently, today? No, back then. Oh. Is there a historical figure that fits this person? Which one? This bad guy. Wasn't it Antiochus? Ochus? Antiochus? Antiochus. 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 That's the thing you get on the back of your neck. <laughs> Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. Before I get into that, I just want you to see this this little chart that I that I put down here. Hopefully, it'll help explain some of the imagery. It says Daniel chapter two, then chapter seven, then chapter eight. Then when you read down, remember Daniel chapter two, he had a vision in the, of of a gold uh, monument, and it had silver, and it had bronze, and it had iron, and we explained what it meant. Well, if you take gold and you come all the way over here under nations, it talks about Babylon. Gold represented Babylon. Silver represented Medo-Persian Empire. Silver represented Greece. And then iron and clay represents Rome, as we talked about it then. Last week in the vision, Daniel chapter 7, under animals, you have the winged Lion, we talked about it represented Babylon. Uh, then you have the bear, uh, which represents the Medo Persian Empire. Then you had uh, winged leopard, uh, which represented Greece. And then this week, you don't have anything for Babylon because Babylon would no longer be in place, it's already conquered. And so, what you now have is, is the ram, which is the Medo Persian Empire. And then you have the goat, which represents Greece. So this is just kind of explaining those things and then to these countries. And so it's Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and then Rome. These are the major world entities that uh, uh, wanted to conquer the earth. But 
who is this person? Or is this talking about end time events? Because if we know, if we read in Revelation, we know that the Antichrist in end time events, he goes into the temple, proclaims himself to be God. So is this referencing the Antichrist? Or is it representing something else? I mean, intuitively, with the imagery that it's talking about, I sense that it is. Mm -hmm. I just, based off what I've read in Revelations on my own, I sense that it could be. Is it it meaning that, so if you have, like, Greece and Rome, they all started to put themselves as these god figures, they were, you know, the Caesars, they were They they wanted to control the world. That out of those same people... Is speaking of how the Antichrist will continue out of that. I'm asking the question. Lineage, but that's what I'm asking: is it is it feeding into the fact like here's Medo Persia, here's Greece, here's Rome, and then later on down the road you're going to get there's you know, the some definite similarities because the Antichrist at end times will come out of that same general area, mm-hmm. and the countries that are involved. Uh, will be future tense roughly in the same geographical area. So, yeah, but for our discussion, we're talking about these countries. And so right now where we're at is Greece. We haven't gotten to Rome, so Greece is, is, is controlling the deal. So is there anybody historically from that Greek period that we could say fits this description. Mm-hmm. We have a history teacher here. I still see it's the Antiochus guy. Antiochus? Yeah. Antiochus? Antiochus? Antiochus. Antiochus. Yeah. It's a, this, this little horn that comes out of one of the other horns. His name is Antiochus the Fourth. But he's also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a Hebrew word and it means madman. Antiochus. You want to put that up? You also put up, put up, wait, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. Epiphanes. E P I P. E P I P H A N E S. This is his name, but the Jews referred to him as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the Madman. Okay, so this Antiochus is the one who they're talking about here. He hasn't appeared on the scene yet, still a couple hundred years away, but he's coming. And um, he, his reign is from between 170 and 164 B.C. So we're at what, 550s? So this is still three, three, 350 and some years away, talking about it. But what he is, is he's anti-God, he's anti-Israel, he's, he, 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 he destroys the, the uh, temple. 
And then, you know, Jewish custom is that you do not eat pork. You don't have anything to do with, with pork. And what he does, he goes into the temple and on the altar of God, he sacrifices a pig. That's like just total in-your-face, uh, you know, refuting everything who God is. This guy actually does it in Antiochus Epiphanes. And you'll find his story in, in Maccabees. You ever heard of Maccabees? That's the story. There's Maccabees. In the Catholic Bible, um, uh, in the Catholic Bible, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in between, you have the pseudographia. And what it means is uh, there's other books in there that, are, that, that, that they placed in there just to distinguish uh, the Catholic Bible between this Bible. Because, follow me, i got to chase a rabbit here. That when Martin Luther came and, and he protested some of the things that the church was doing, it wasn't a Roman Catholic church at that time. It was the Church of Rome had authority because at that time Rome was the leading nation. And so the church in Rome had authority to do a lot of things. It didn't affect the church in the East, the Eastern Orthodox, but in the Western world it did affect and so they were doing a lot of things, and Martin Luther kind of protested. And out of that, they expelled Martin Luther and all this stuff. And then he started writing now the Bible. Up until that point, the Bible was only in Latin. He translated it into German. And what came out of that was the Reformation, which leads to where we are today as Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians. That's where that separation started in the early 1500s. And so... What happened in the year 1545 is that the church in Rome decided they needed to separate. They didn't want people running around and saying, well, our Bible is the same as your Bible. Because a Catholic Bible and this Christian Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament are exactly the same. But in the year 1545 at the Council of Trent, they put in these seven or eight books, they're historical books. They put them in the middle part there. And they're, they're not, uh, uh, let's say, of the Lord, but they're historical books. And in there you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. There's a f person by the name of Judas Maccabeus, and he was the one that led the revolt against Antiochus. Because what you had were the, what they called Jewish zealots, they were so upset with what was going on, they wanted to reclaim the temple. And so they revolted against him. They ended up kicking him out, sending him on the run. He, he dies, and then they restore the temple practice. So the Maccabean revolt is about the revolt against Antiochus IV. Hanukkah. And yes, that's where I'm going with this. And then, so then... When they come back to the temple, when they restore the temple, the first thing you have to do, according to Levitical law, is you have to light the menorah, because the menorah represents the Spirit of God. So you can't have a, a, a temple without the Spirit of God. And by the way, that's why Jews do this. They're immolating the flame. Proverbs twenty twenty two, I believe it is, the Spirit of the Lord is like a flame or a candle that searches your innermost being. And so what they're doing when they're praying is they're saying the Spirit of God 
is there searching. So they're they're emulating the flame. That that's what this is. So sometimes you you might find yourself if you're in prayer, you're going through something. Sometimes I see this a lot of times in people. They just automatically start rocking when they're in prayer. It's just I don't know. It's just a phenomenon. Anyway, so what happened was you have to light the menorah because everything was ransacked. They did not have enough oil to keep it lit. They only had one day's oil. But how many days of Hanukkah are there? You know, when you see the menorah, there's eight. And what it celebrates is that it takes eight days to make new oil. They only had one day's oil to keep the flame lit, but God kept the, the flame lit for eight days until the new oil was there. So Hanukkah celebrates the fact that God kept the candle going. So every day, in a, in a, if you're in a Jewish household and you have a menorah, you, you light the first candle and then every day you light another candle until all eight are lit. There's eight days of Hanukkah. And uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, celebrated Hanukkah. It's called the Festival of Lights. And his scripture, I think it's in Matthew, it says, and Jesus was in the portico of Solomon during the Festival of Lights. It's not one of the seven feasts of Israel or anything like that, but it gives it gives honor to God, you know. So that's where all that comes from. So this guy actually leads to what we now know as as Hanukkah and all that and the restoration of the temple. So the temple now gets restored in about the year 164. Now we're about 160 years away from from Jesus. So when now when Jesus comes on the scene. They're back doing temple worship, temple services and stuff because they got rid of this guy and they got rid of his rule. And what comes in right after this, Rome comes in. And now Rome takes over because this kingdom is very weak. The four generals are very weak. And uh, uh, he, he's weak. And uh, so Rome comes in and now they take over. And that's why uh, a couple things. Rome, even though they're Italians... The, the language of the learned was Greek and Greek philosophy and all that stuff. So you would be educated in Greek culture even though you were a Roman citizen or if you were like Paul uh, 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 studying something, you would know Paul knew Hebrew. He went to, uh, um, not seminary, but he trained under the masters, but he was also trained in in in, uh, in in the Greek schools, so he knew both of those. It's called Hellenism, you know, Helena Troy, and so uh, that's why the New Testament is written in Greek, even though it's controlled by Rome. You would think it would be Italian, but it's not because the the Greeks had a better system of education, and so Romans were educated under the Greek system. Okay, so that's why the New Testament is written in Greek, because that was the language of the learned. And so all of that, that that whole rabbit chase, is all because of this. And he's he's talking about it 350, 400 years before it actually happens. See, we kind of put the pieces together, but think about Daniel. He doesn't know what the heck he's seen. He he doesn't really know how to interpret this. He doesn't know how this all fits together. But, as I think Adrian said, that there's some similarities to some end time stuff here. 
and later on next week and the week after now we're going to be getting into more end time stuff as it affects Israel because remember chapter 8 to the end is about Israel it's about how what's going to be happening in Israel and to the Israelites thoughts questions there's a lot of stuff there I know <laughs> a lot of stuff so uh, uh, okay let's take this a little farther because it's, it's just going to explain it a little bit more Verse 13 and 14. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? In other words, he's talking about how long will it be that the regular regular sacrifice is not going to be in effect? Is what he's saying. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the, it says, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. So in other words, he's saying, how long is this going to be allowed to go on? Because don't forget, he's doing something, but God's allowing judgment to come against the Israelis, against the Jews. This is their temple their place of worship, but they weren't following God. You know, they were they were rebellious people. And so I saying, how long is this going to be allowed to, to, to go on? Verse fourteen, and he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay. 2,300 evenings is a little more than six and a half years. I told you Antiochus' reign in Israel started in mid 170, ended in 164. Over six and a half years. 2,300 days. Mm. Now, this was all written before this happened. Okay? So, chase a rabbit here. Why would God put this, and why is, is this important to be in the Bible? Historical reference that are pre-said. Pre Historical references are pre-said. Yeah, but a little more. Okay, because whose book is this? God's. And so, who's being revealed? God. Okay, so who's telling the story? God. And why is he telling the story? So that we will believe him. We will believe him? Why? Oh, for our, for our sins, for, for us to be saved. Well, for us to be saved, but when he says he's the Alpha and the Omega... And the Omega he proves to us that he already knows the future. The future is already set. That's what Alpha and Omega means. So yeah, it's it's that. But God is showing his control over world events. See, this is a world event, but.
but God allowed this to happen because of the sin of the Israelites. So sometimes when people think, oh, well, God's just going to protect us and yada, 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 just because you know, he has to, yada, 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 you, know, you have to understand all this in, 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 the, in the context of what is God doing and where are we in the, in the, in the, in the move of God. Where are we? That's why I say theology is only who is God, what is he doing, and where am I in relationship to what God is doing? Who is God, what is he doing, and where am I? Because we don't want to be outside of what God is doing, right? We should be where God is doing. And so it's like right now with this COVID thing and all the stuff we're going on. Our job, our task is to find out what is God doing. Right? What is God doing in all this? And, and how does this, what should the church be doing in all of this? You know, how do we handle the fact that people come and tell us what we can do and what we can't do as a church? How do we do that without breaking the law? Because we're supposed to obey the law. But at the same time, we're supposed to honor God. So how do we, how do we navigate that? You know, so... Is food for thought. So during this time, sacrifice was suspended in the temple. They did not practice Judaism because he was reigning in there and the temple was, was destroyed. Okay? Thoughts, questions? I have a question. Yeah. When it says, then he heard a holy one speaking and another holy one, is that supposed to be God and Jesus? No, because it's not capital H. Oh, oh. But, good question, who would a holy one be? An angel? Yeah. A holy one. An angel. So again, in our understanding of angels, they are holy, but they are not holy with a capital H. Only God is holy with a capital H. Holy Spirit. Capital H. And we're going to get into another angel right now. Verse 15. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. So he, you know, he doesn't get it. He doesn't know what's going on, right? This doesn't make any sense to him. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. He looked like a man. Somebody standing before him. Obviously, this is a vision. Obviously, he might have been dressed a particular way. He says, obviously, he had the appearance of a man. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the river there. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he heard two holy ones. And then one says to Gabriel, who's the angel, right? He said, hey, Gabe, tell him what's going on. That's what he's saying there. Verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face. Which is the typical response when anybody in the Bible has an encounter supernatural with God or his messengers. They're always frightened and they always hit the ground face forward, right? But he said to me, son of man, and this is not son of man as in Jesus son of man. He says, and this, is, this is like, you're in, in a sense saying, the one that God is using, you know. He says, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. 
Now pay attention to that, to time of the end, because right there you can say, oh, wait a minute, that's end time stuff. It says the time of the end. Well, hold that thought. It says, now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignations. So that's the end, the end of the indignation. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So there's an appointed time to the end of this and this dispensation. And, and because what's looming on the horizon? What's the next big event? Jesus. Christ. Jesus. Jesus so he's saying the end is the end of all of this, the end of what's going on with the Old Testament dispensation period and what the, the next thing that God's going to do is, is Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist comes and then Jesus comes. Messiah comes. So it's the angel Gabriel. Gabriel gives Daniel the interpretation. The appointed time of the end. We're talking about Christ's coming. And again, remember, Israel is under wrath for their disobedience. So how long is that going to last? Until Messiah comes. Right? Verse 20. The ram which you saw, he's interpreting it. The ram which you saw was the two horns represents the kings of Media. Sometimes it says Media. Sometimes it says Medes. Sometimes it says Medo. All the same. Yeah, Medo Persia. Huh? Yeah, Media and Persia, which again, referenced over here. So in other words, so he says, what we were talking about before, what I was explaining, he's now explaining in scripture. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Medo-Persia. Then 21. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. See, I didn't make this stuff up. But I read this before you did. (laughs) No. This is represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king of Greece is Alexander the Great. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So like I said, the four kings, they don't have that much power. Once Alexander the Great dies... His power dies with him. He was a brilliant general, brilliant technician, whatever you want to call it. But when he dies, they have the kingdom, and they divide it with four generals, but they they just don't have the stuff. That's why out of them comes this guy, who now sets himself up to be, you know, whoever he wants to be, you know. So now... Okay, now verse 23. And in the latter period of their rule, of whose rule? The four kings. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Antiochus. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy 
to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. You see, he's powerful, but it's not his own power. God is allowing judgment to come on the, on the, on the Jewish people. He's saying, in a sense, God is saying, he's able to take over the sacrifice. He's able to take over the temple because you didn't care. You weren't following my word. You weren't doing this. You weren't doing that. So therefore, I'm going to show you how I see it. God sees it as a temple destroyed. Right? Uh, 24. And his power will be mighty, but not his own, and he will destroy by an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, and he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which have been told is true, in other words, the 2300 days, which has been told is true, but keep the vision a secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So he says, this is something, write it down, keep it, hold it, but this is something that is coming. And then he closes chapter 8, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. Isn't it interesting that Daniel, who could explain others' visions, here couldn't totally explain his own vision that he was given. Because it's about things that were outside of what was around him. See, his other visions, the dreams that he explained, it was about Nebuchadnezzar and what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar in his lifetime. This is several hundred years away. It's a different world. It's a different, you know, there's, there's no possibilities here. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand this. Daniel doesn't live in Israel. He's still living in Babylon. So he, he, you know. Well, isn't this vision a little more compound than all the others? Because this happens when that happens, and it just keeps going, and yet it's referring to nations. But the other ones were somewhat simple because they only had like two or three steps to them. This one has one step right after another and another. You kind of get, you can get lost real easy. And so that's why it's just like following again what happened here and here is basically setting up so now you understand the deeper here because if you read this chapter 8 and you haven't read the other, it's just like what am I telling you? What's going on? There's a unicorn. What's, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But when you understand it, and then what's interesting about Scripture is he gives the vision, makes us ponder the vision or the dream, whatever it might be, and then he gives us the interpretation. It's like he lets us kind of think, well, what could this be? Yada, yada. And then as we read, he says, this is what it is. You know? And so he like draws us into it. And but it's it's like each time he explains it, it's a little deeper. It's a little bit deeper water, but it's the same, some similar 
events with four kingdoms that will try and set themselves up a world domination, uh, which ties into what we're going to be getting in next week and the weeks after. About and then we're going to be talking about the end of the age. He's going to get other dreams and visions about end time event stuff. He's going to be even more confused, you know. But again, God wants us to know because then we we get a greater understanding of Alpha and Omega. So when he said, let there be light, the end was already there. You know, it was already there. That's why a Christian worldview is a straight line. A definite beginning and a definite end. A worldview is a circle. What goes around comes around. It's like the seasons, just over and over and over and over. It's not that way with God. He created something, but it's going to have a definite end. Uh, And in the end, we all better be saved. But in that process, God's explaining who he is, what he's doing, what he expects from us. And then he's he's showing us who we are in our fallen condition, why why we cannot approach God, uh, and then shows us that we are in need of a Savior, then shows us uh, that a Savior is coming. And as you get closer and closer to the end of the Old Testament, the stories and the things that you get are a little more detail about Messiah. One is coming, you know, and the, and the, and the weight of the world will be upon his shoulders and stuff like that. We can make those, those, those uh, quick uh, jumps to the, this is Christ. And so, again, the Old Testament is just pointing to the cross so that the pro- cross comes, the work is done, uh, uh, ascended seated at the right hand of the Father, and now if this is the New Testament, it's just the Old Testament pulled through the cross. This is now what all that means. And this is how the church is supposed to respond based on what, who God is, what he's done, what he's already said, what he's shown us, the revelation of Christ, our Savior, and then how we are to now move to our future, as he said. Right? Good part of him being sick isn't that he just I mean because I know he was astounded and there was nobody to explain it but part of it is he is understanding it and he's upset over the fact that this is going to happen because he gets sick by it Jeremiah gets sick because he understands what's going to happen because Jeremiah is first person he's going to see people taken into captivity Daniel yeah part of it is part of it He's sick that he doesn't understand it. You know, he gets part of it, but he doesn't get all of it because there isn't anything like this set up that he can see coming. With Nebuchadnezzar, he could see it. But with this, this is 300, 400 years off. He, he, can't, he can't imagine. That's, that's like you and I trying to imagine what would the world be like 400 years from now? I have no idea. No idea. So, um, again, this is this is just Daniel is about showing how people try to conquer the world, how people try to put themselves in the place of God. Um, but it's also about God revealing to us what's coming. But it's also God showing us that He is a God of judgment. 
But sometimes people get this, this complacency that they think God's not going to judge. And He is, because judgment's throughout the Bible. You know? And then, you know, sometimes people think, well, He's going to judge us in the, in the last day. He's going to judge the living and the dead in the last day. And I say, really? You better read Acts chapter 5. Because two people were judged right then and there. Ananias and Sapphira for, for what they were doing. Holy Spirit judged them and they, they were killed right on the spot. But the Holy Spirit is also Christ. See, see, people don't understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They just think well, when Jesus comes back, but they forget in a sense he's already back via the Holy Spirit that indwells in us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that's theology. That's how you look at this. So thoughts, questions? Make sense? Yeah, okay. Next week, Daniel's intercession, and uh, Gabriel's going to show up again, and then we're going to get a revelation about 70 weeks. What does that mean? And uh, and a couple weeks after that, we're going to be done with that, and then I'm going to go into Revelation, because... uh, Let me say this. Let me say this about that. Um, yeah, you have in Revelation. You have a seal. You have a trumpet, and you have a bowl. And there's a seal. And the seal means something that's sealed up, like a scroll. That's what they used to do with scrolls with, with scripture. It was like that, and it was sealed up. And so there's only one person worthy enough to undo the seal and read what is coming. That person is Jesus Christ. So he unveils the seal. So in those scriptures where it talks about the seal in heaven... He's talking about end time events that's going to happen. Then after that, it talks about the trumpets. Well, the trumpet means an announcement that comes from heaven. And now what you have is an announcement after the seal has been broken, the seal has been read, now the trumpet announcement, this is what's going to happen to the earth. It's the same as this, the same as that, but to his point, it might be a little bit deeper, a little bit more detailed. And then the final thing is the bowl judgment. The bowl is poured out. And so now when you get to the bowl judgment, this is the wrath of God poured out. And so now it encompasses what the, what the seal said, what the trumpet announcement was, and what's inside the bowl judgment. It's now poured out. It's not three, four different things. It's all one thing. But when you read it and understand it, you, you get a better picture of it. So that's kind of what Daniel, okay, why is he telling the same thing in a little bit different way? This is why there are four Gospels. So you get a better rounded picture of it and, you know, showing who God is. So I'll stop with that. Thoughts, questions, good? Yeah? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we again, we just thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for 
uh, your word, Lord, that edifies us for today, uh, your word that teaches us from yesterday, and your word that points us to tomorrow. And so, Lord, in all of this, we look to see what you are doing. What are your steps in the world today? What is the movement of God uh, in our lives, in our community, in our church, Lord? What are we supposed to be? Who are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to be? And so, Lord, we ask that you reveal these things to us, Lord, and that you strengthen us, encourage us, Lord, and that as we leave the sanctuary, but not your presence, Lord, you continue to be with us, to watch over us, and to help us in every aspect, Lord. And But also as we study and read ahead in Daniel, that you, or even look back in Daniel, Lord, that you bring even more insight uh, to us, because the Holy Spirit reads with us whenever we read Scripture. And so in this, Lord, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God.